In April of last year, we began a sermon series looking at the big story of the Bible. Book by book, we began tracing God's plan for the redemption of His people. And we've seen all along the way how God has worked out all things according to His plan. And this week and next week, we will finish out the Old Testament. And then we will begin seeing the fulfillment of all God's plans in the coming of Christ as we look book by book through the books of the New Testament. So this morning we come to the last book that we will look at in the Old Testament, the book of Chronicles. And it may surprise you that we are looking at this book as the last book of the Old Testament since it comes much earlier uh, in our Bibles just after Samuel and Kings. But what you need to understand is that Chronicles is much more than just a summary of what has come on before. Very often we think about Chronicles in that way. We've read the fuller accounts in Samuel and Kings, and now we kind of read a summary or maybe even some extra bits in Chronicles. But it's much more than that. First of all, I'm referring to 1 and 2 Chronicles or First and Second Chronicles as simply one book as Chronicles because that's what it is. Uh, it's just one book that's been divided in two because of language translation. Uh, originally in the Hebrew, uh, you just had the book of Chronicles. But as even the situation that we will see in a minute, as people, uh, God's people, Israel, went into exile and they went into Greek-speaking countries, they not only uh, proselytized those that were not part of the people of God, but they themselves, as they were forced to learn Greek in order to survive in the rest of culture, they also translated the scriptures into Greek. And if you've ever... Uh, read or seen Greek or Hebrew, you may know that it takes twice as much space to write Greek as it does Hebrew because Hebrew doesn't put any of the vowels in. And so what wound up happening is instead of being uh, uh, one scroll being sufficient for the book of Chronicles, two scrolls uh, were needed to write all of its content. And so that's why even today we have uh, First and Second Chronicles. And yet it is one book originally, and it was in fact the last book of the Old Testament uh, as it was originally put together. When Jesus would have been raised going to the synagogue and the temple, uh, Chronicles would have been the very last book that would have been found there because it was written as one of the last books of the Old Testament. It was written at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah, and that is significant for how we are to understand how to read this book. You see, the book of Chronicles was written to God's people as they existed as a community coming back from exile. We have seen uh, for several weeks how because of repeated sin, because of repeated rebellion, God disciplined His people by sending them uh, into exile out of the promised land. And now the people have been back and for a hundred years they have been seeking to have their lives rebuilt to the way it once was, both spiritually having their lives renewed, but also physically seeing the very city of God, Jerusalem, rebuilt around them, having the temple rebuilt that sacrifices of worship might be offered again. And all the while, God has encouraged them through godly leadership and through prophets promising to once again, in fullness, be their God and for them to be their people. But the question that is burning in the hearts and minds of Israel at this time is, do we still really have hope in God? Can we still trust in His promises? Because what He has promised has not yet happened. We have not seen the kind of prosperity. We've not seen the kind of blessing that we were expecting to have at this point. So the question is, is something wrong with us? Is something wrong with God? 
The people found themselves in a place of not having hope. And so the chronicler, which is the name given to the individual who wrote Chronicles because we don't know who it was, the chronicler is wanting to write Chronicles to remind Israel both of how they arrived at where they were and what their hope could be for the future. In the process, he doesn't just write history. He presents what we may call theological history, something close to a sermon, all the while pointing the people of Israel back to God, assuring them that they can have hope in Him and in His promises. So this morning, as we read Chronicles, in many ways, the same case that he lays out for why ancient Israel could have hope for the future we can see as the same reasons why we today as God's people can have hope for the future. Thus, in order to have our own faith encouraged and deepened, we want to spend the next two weeks looking at the book of Chronicles. And to do that, we want to begin by looking at a key passage from 1 Chronicles, and 1 Chronicles chapter 29. 1 Chronicles chapter 29. At this point in the book, David has desired to build a permanent temple for God. Up to this point, uh, he, has only, uh, he has only resided in the tabernacle, in that tent that could be taken down and put back up as the people wandered throughout their wilderness wanderings. And yet David has said, God deserves something better. And so, uh, nevertheless, though this was all well-intentioned, God said, it is not for you to build a temple for me, but rather your son Solomon will be the one who builds a house for my ark. Nevertheless, God desires to have a hand, excuse me, David desires to have a hand in this. He desires to do all that he can, though he himself will not be permitted to build the temple. So he organizes all of the temple workers. He says this is what is going to be required uh, once the temple is established uh, for, the peop- for the worship of God to continue. And so he organizes all of the tribe of Levi into these workers. Furthermore, he gathers together the materials necessary to build the temple. He also commissions the very plans for the design and layout of the temple. And now as he is about to in fact pass away and and hand off the baton of leadership of Israel from himself to his son, he gathers together the leaders of Israel to tell them to finish contributing all that is needed to see the temple of God completed and maintained. They respond willingly and joyfully by donating and by worshiping the Lord. And so in chapter Uh, 29 verse 10, we read this as David prays to God. David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both the riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I, and what is my people, that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your hand have we given. For we are strangers before you, and sojourners, as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow, and there is no abiding." O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building, for, a build, for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is your own. 
I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all, and that he may build the palace for which I have made provision. Then David and all the assembly, then David said to all the assembly, Bless the Lord your God. And all the assembly blessed the Lord, the God of their fathers, and bowed their heads and paid homage to the Lord and to King. They offered sacrifices to the Lord. And on the next day offered burnt offerings to the Lord, 1,000 bulls, 1,000 rams, and 1,000 lambs with drink offerings and sacrifices in abundance for all Israel. And they ate and drank before the Lord on that day with great gladness. May God bless the reading of His Word. From this prayer comes many of the central themes of the book of Chronicles. All of these themes are there to give hope, to give hope, a confident hope, to God's people. And I think that if we will spend time thinking about these themes, we will find ourselves built up in confident hope to God. So what should give us hope? There was at least three themes here. There was originally four, and I didn't think that we were ready for an hour-long sermon, so I'm moving point four to next Sunday as we look at Second Chronicles, okay? So three things for us to consider this morning. First of all, what can give us hope? By remembering the glory of God's reign. By remembering the glory of God's reign. More than one commentator has pointed out that part of the intention of Chronicles is to provide a biography of God. Now, uh, as someone who likes to read, biographies have always uh, been especially interesting and fascinating to me. First and foremost, for one simple fact, you get to learn things about people that you never learned before. Uh, for instance, in, in reading an account of one of the founders of the seminary I went to, John Broadus, he actually visited uh, Spurgeon's church one Sunday, and without any prior notice, Spurgeon offered to let Broadus preach from his pulpit. I mean, you can imagine the great honor it was, and yet in humility, Broadus said, no, uh, people didn't come to hear me, they came to hear you. And so, uh, so uh, Spurgeon preached. Uh, perhaps something a little bit more interesting to you. Uh, some of you will be familiar with Jimmy Stewart, the man, who, the actor who was famous for being in movies like uh, It's a Wonderful Life and the man who shot Liberty Valance and Vertigo and so many of these other things. Uh, what I did not know until I read his biography is that he was in fact a bomber pilot during World War II and in fact stayed in the reserves up through uh, the Vietnam War and even flew missions with some of the bombers in that war. You learn all kinds of interesting things about people when you read biography. But sometimes, sometimes I'll read a biography of someone I've already read because I want to be reminded of the facts that I already know about that person. And I think that in both of those things, but particularly the last way, you see Chronicles writing about God to his people. He is seeking to remind them why they worship God why they should continue to put their faith in Him, why it is He saved them out of exile even as He first saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And He reminds them above all else that it is God who reigns over all things. And yet this reign is a glorious reign. It, is, it, it reveals His character. 
And much of that is found in those opening verses that that we read, verses uh, 10 and following. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. He goes on to say that it is to Him, it is to Him that all things are subservient under, that He is the one who reigns above all things. And again, this reign is a glorious one. Notice a couple of things. First of all, as God reigns, He reigns as a God who is generous. As a God who is generous, David says, For all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Later, when David talks about all the offerings the people have given, he says, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. David is is pointing out the fact, here is a God who has created all things, and as the creator of those things, they rightfully belong to him, and yet he generously shares them with his creation. All that we have, from food on our table to the jobs that we had and the strength we had to work those jobs to get money to buy that food, all of those things come to us from God's generous hand. And so this is why very often when we pray at our offering time at the end, we, someone will invariably say something like, we are giving back to you what you have given to us. It's a God who reigns generously above His people, but it's also a God who reigns faithfully over His people in all things. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. We will talk about this more in a minute when we look at our second reason for hope, but I want us to note here what David knows and what the chronicler wants Israel after the exile to know, and that is this. God is forever faithful to His covenant promises. He will forever be the God of Israel. He will never go back on those promises that he made to them. And above all, we see that God is one who reigns as supreme Lord. As supreme Lord. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as head above all. You rule over all. In your hand are power and might. Even coming out of the exile, having been ruled by other countries who worshipped other gods. The chronicler wants Israel to remember all of that only happened because God allowed it to happen. He is supreme over all things. And it is in fact because of his supremacy, because he reigns exalted and sovereign over all things, that he can be generous, that he can be faithful to his promises. Think about it. If God was not all-powerful, how could he ensure his plan is fulfilled? It's only in being the king above all kings and the Lord above all lords. He is the one who is the possessor David says, of all greatness, power, glory, victory, and majesty. That is the God that the chronicler wants the people of Israel to remember. He wants them to remember the glorious reign of their God that they might have hope for their life. The question that we have to ask this morning is simply this. Is this the God that you often think about and that you remember? Is this the God that you know from the Bible and from personal experience? Do you acknowledge God as one who has absolute sovereignty over all things, including your own life? Do you acknowledge Him as your Creator and as the one from whom comes everything you have as a gracious and generous gift? Do you live each day trusting, even banking your life on the fact that God will keep His promises, that He will be faithful to His Word. 
If that's not the God you know, if it's not the God that you trust in, then I doubt you really have much hope for the future. You may have a kind of optimism that things will work out in the end, but there can be no assurance, no firm and lasting hope unless this is the God that you know and you love and you trust. And when you do have this kind of assurance in God, you notice the response that will come. David says, I know, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered all these things. And now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. It goes on to describe the amount that they have contributed both to the temple and to that day's offering thousands of animals all with gladness of heart, it says. The people who know God, the people who trust God, also worship Him both sacrificially and joyfully. Freely from the heart, they give themselves over in abundance. Why? Because they know they have a certain, a, a certain and sure hope in their God. Now, if that alone wasn't enough, holding up who God is in all of His glory it's his, as He reigns over all things. The chronicler also points to the election of God's people as a means of having hope in the midst of their circumstances. So this is the second thing that we want to think about, the election of God's people. Much like all of Chronicles, David here reminds the people of why it is they stand before God at this moment in time. Israel stands before the Lord of all things preparing to build for him a temple because God himself has chosen them to be his people. Beginning at verse 14, David asks, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given. For we are strangers before you and sojourners as all our fathers were. Our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no abiding. Verse 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts towards you. There is a, there's an enormous shift that is about to, be, to take place when David is praying. And that is a shift from worshiping God in a movable temporary tabernacle to a fixed point in the land, in this permanent, glorious residence of a temple. And David himself is aware of his place and the place of his people Israel in the midst of this great shift. And what he acknowledges is simply this, they are only there at that time. They are only there building this temple. They are only there about to worship in the way they are because God has been gracious to them. Not just to that immediate generation of David, but to all of the generations that have led up to David standing before God in this way. They are all part of this unfolding plan that God has been working out since he first gave promises to Abraham. David has an understanding of this larger plan of God, and so does the chronicler. And he wants to remind the people of his day of this plan. Unlike Samuel and Kings that pick up the story of Israel just as they are about to enthrone their first king, the chronicler goes all the way back to the very beginning of all things. He doesn't even start with Abraham, the, the father of the Jewish race. He goes all the way back to Adam, the very first man. And if you read 1 Chronicles this week in preparation, you know that the first, uh, first nine chapters are given over to this great sweep of history. 
tracing out the lineage from Adam to, to Abraham, from Abraham to Jacob, and then like a tree branching off in different directions. All of Jacob's sons making up the people of Israel. But then the chronicler goes even further and traces those genealogies out to the people to whom he is writing. The very people that have come out of exile and have returned to the promised land. And again, think about why is the chronicler doing this? It's because he's wanting to give hope to God's people. He is wanting to to kind of pull back their mind's eye and help them to see that they're not just some isolated blip that has happened on God's screen or on the, the line of human history, but rather they are part of a bigger, a grander design of what God is seeking to bring about. Think about how much hope this would have brought to a people who were coming out of exile because they had sinned grievously against their God. Think about in your own life. If you have sinned and experienced the discipline of the Lord, if you feel despised and cast off by God, what, what do you want to hear by way of hope? What do you want to hear that would give you assurance that God hasn't forgotten you? Do you want to hear something along the lines of God helps those who helps themselves? I wouldn't. Because I've just shown myself incapable of helping myself. It's my sin that's distanced me from God. Now I think that like the chronicler, what I would want to hear, what all of us would want to hear, is that from eternity past, before God set forth His plan for all creation with wisdom beyond comprehension, God chose to set His affection on a people and so love them and care for them that nothing would be able to cause that relationship to fail. Because ultimately, if our relationship with God depends on us, it will fail and we have no hope. But if ultimately our relationship depends on God and what He has done, what He is even doing now and promises to continue to do, then we can have hope, a confident hope, because God is a God who keeps His promises. And to those whom He has chosen to be His people, He has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is, as David says, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. You know, there are times when my children have not acted appropriately. Imagine that, right? And there are times when uh, they have really, um, really done something bad. There, There are times when they have not just kind of forgotten the rules, they have seen the rules, they have known the rules, they have willfully disobeyed the rules. And when they have been told... Don't do that. Remember, that's not, that's not what you should be doing. They continually persist in that activity. And it is, it is in those moments when you have to punish them. You have to discipline them. And you have to do so with a firm hand so that they realize the severity of their sin. But I also say to them, you know that I love you. Do I love you because you've just sinned like this? Do I love you because you have dishonored me? Obviously not. I love you because you're my child. I love you because you're my boy or you're my girl. And so though I am upset with you, though I am mad at you, though I have disciplined you and there are consequences to your actions, you need to understand, I won't stop loving you because you've sinned. I won't stop loving you because you've dishonored me. Nothing you can do will ever stop me from loving you because you are my child. I am your father. 
And I do that because I want them to know, A, that's how fathers and mothers should love their kids. But B, we should love them that way because that's how God loves us. When He has chosen to set His affection on us, the adoption that goes through the moment of our faith is permanent. He never stamps, return to sender on our forehead and ships us back off to the devil in the world. He doesn't do that. He says, you are my child and I will forever love you. Yes, we may sin. Yes, we may dishonor him. Yes, as Paul says, we may grieve his spirit. Nevertheless, he is willing to forgive us. He will never, as he has promised, leave us or forsake us. This is the message that the chronicler wants his people to understand. And this is a message that we need to understand today. Because I have seen people who far too often, far too often believe that, that there's going to reach a point and God is just going to cast them away and there's not going to be any hope. And friends, as long as it is in your heart to return to God, just like the father in the story of the prodigal son, he will be there waiting to forgive you and to receive you back because he has set his affection on you and he has made you his child. Therefore, you are forever his how can we have hope in dry times? How can we have hope in difficult times? How can we have hope in desperate times? By remembering the glory of God's reign above all things, by remembering the election of God's people, and finally by remembering the promise to God's King. By remembering the promise to God's King. Notice in verse 14, David doesn't just think of the people of Israel. He also thinks about what God has done for him. He doesn't just say, what is my people? He also says, who am I? Who am I, O God, that I would be able to stand before you and worship you in this way? And if you just read through Chronicles, you'll know David is a key part of the book. In fact, he is the main actor on the stage after God. Earlier we talked about how the Chronicles sets uh, the, the story that he is telling in the context of all of creation. But what you need to understand is, uh, before you get to David, it's just genealogy. I mean, every once in a while you get these little one or two verse little asides, like the infamous prayer of Jabez uh, account. But for the most part, it's just all Adam had this kid who had this kid who had this kid and who led to Abraham who had this kid, all up to David. It's like history starts with David. Okay, now, now we get to the good stuff. David is here. And just as in 2 Samuel, so also the chronicler rightly emphasizes God's covenant with David. And I know that very often we hear things like covenant, we hear things like promises, and we just kind of relegate that to religious jargon in our minds. But please don't do that. Understand the, the, the magnitude of what God is doing in his relationship with David. He is obligating himself to David and to his subsequent sons. Imagine if God came to you and said, I promise with all of my being, as Hebrews said, there's nothing greater than God, so he swears by himself, for the glory of my name, I commit myself to you. And not just you, but your sons, even after you are long dead. Think about the, the, uh, the amazing reality of God doing that. And thus, you have David saying, Who am I that you would do such a thing for me? It echoes the prayer offered in 1 Chronicles 17, when God first enters into covenant with David. 
Now, what is this covenant? You may remember, you may not. The covenant simply went like this. David, again, he's looking at his palace. He, he has come through the rough patch. He's finally enthroned as king of Israel. And he is standing out looking over his kingdom one day. And in the shadow of his magnificent house is the pilly little tabernacle for God as he perceives it. And he, you can just imagine him looking at the cedars and the gold inlay and the stonework. And he looks down at this tent and he says, this isn't right. And so he calls the prophet and he says, I want to build God a house that will rival my own. I want to put him in a temple that will show his greatness and his glory. And the prophet says, hey, it sounds good to me, go for it. And yet that night, God comes to the prophet and he says, you tell this to David. You tell this to David. Thanks, but no thanks. Have I ever complained about being in a tent before? I appreciate the thought, David, but, but because you are a man of war, I will not permit you to build a house for me. Nevertheless, he says, I will build a house for you. Now, David's already got a house. He doesn't mean a physical building. He means a dynasty. He means a lineage, a kingdom over the people of Israel. And he promises that he will be with him and with his sons in a way unique to everyone else. He says, unlike Saul, whose, whose family was torn away from the throne of Israel, he says, a son of David will forever be on the throne in Israel. You will have a son and more sons, and I will establish his throne forever. It's amazing. The question for the people in the Chronicler's Day was, is it true? Is it really going to happen? Is God really going to do that? Because you understand there's no king when Chronicles is written. Oh, the Davidic family is still around, but there's no king, Davidic or otherwise. They've barely got the priesthood going. And so, and so they're being reminded of these promises to David, and they're thinking, yeah, but what happened to those promises? There's no king of David over us now. It reminds me very much of probably some of you may be thinking as, as you recall predictions that were made years ago about our, our economy. And I can remember even as uh, shortly after we bought our house, there, there were predictions that I was recently reminded of that you know, the housing market was going to, to increase uh, year after year after year. Things were just looking uh, up and up and up and up. And one person even predicted that every year the value of homes would go up 20%. Imagine that, 20% every year. I mean, in five years, a house that was worth $150,000 would be worth over $370,000. I mean, that's, that's insane, frankly. And you wonder how someone would get away making those predictions. And of course, it didn't come true, did it? The housing market went, bump. And now houses that used to be worth $150,000, you wouldn't be able to get $130,000 for them now because of how bad things go. So you look back now at those predictions and you say, yeah, right. How is that ever going to happen? How, 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 how are we ever going to get a 20% increase year after year after year after year? And it's that same kind of incredulity that the people are looking at the promises of David and they're saying, how? How in the world is God going to honor his promise to David? It seems impossible. And yet, and yet if they aren't possible, if God's promises to David aren't true, then what does that say about the rest of his promises to his people? That means none of them may come true. And so the chronicler is writing purely by faith without sight. He is writing to reassure God's people that the promises that God made to David 
are of such importance that though they cannot clearly see them, they will come true. They will be fulfilled. And now standing almost 2,500 years later from when this book was written, we can see that he was right. For in the fullness of time, God brought forth a son of David who was more than just a son of David. He was God in the flesh. He was Jesus Christ who came as a descendant of David according to the flesh and established a greater throne that would last forever. And so in Acts 13, Paul is preaching and he says, God raised up David to be Israel's king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Jesus came in fulfillment of that promise, that covenant obligation that God made to David. And Jesus could be the savior of God's people, not just Israel, but all who would turn to him from the nations by dying for them on the cross. He willingly gave up his life, becoming a curse so that God's people would not have to die accursed under his hand. Jesus died bearing God's wrath against our sin so that we might have forgiveness and life. And in this way, and in this way, Jesus comes as the superior son of David. He provides a superior rest and a superior salvation than David ever provided. Later in Ephesians chapter 1, we read that when God raised Christ from the dead after his crucifixion, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. Yes, God was faithful to his people and to David by sending forth David's greater son. Here, now, David's greater son, Jesus, sits on the ultimate throne, having the ultimate reign over all of God's enemies and the enemies of his people. Therefore, today, we can rejoice and offer the kind of worship that the people in Israel only dreamed of. Because we have seen the fulfillment of the promises. We, above all people now, can have even more hope than them. Because God has sent the perfect guarantee, the perfect assurance that all His promises are true in sending His own Son to live and to die in our place. One person who lived in light of the hope that God offers was a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. He was born in A.D. 70, and part of what makes him unique is that he learned how to pastor from the Apostle John himself. Think about that, what that must have been like. The guy who was the closest thing Jesus had to a best friend in this life taught this man, Polycarp, what it meant to be a pastor and what the Scriptures meant. Just one generation removed from knowing Jesus himself. Polycarp served the church well, continuing all of his days to hope in God, even unto death. In AD 144, Rome became incredibly hostile to Christianity, and Polycarp found himself chained to a pyre of kindling, about to be martyred for the faith as the Romans held out their torches. And as they were getting ready to burn him alive, they taunted him, saying, Where's your hope now, Polycarp? Don't you want to call out for mercy from Caesar and to the gods rather than die this horrible death? 
For us, it would seem a moment of hopelessness. But even at 84 years of age, Polycarp knew the God of the Bible, and therefore he had hope. He knew the God of Adam and Noah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew the God of Israel, the Father of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he had hope, hope of salvation and hope of the resurrection from the dead. Therefore, though the taunting of the Romans was merciless, Polycarp simply said this, 84 years have I served Christ, and he has never done me wrong. How am I to begin not trusting him now? He says, 84 years, I have lived by faith in Christ. My hope has been in Him. And now, in this moment, you want me to throw all that away? He says, I don't think so. The, the God who has been faithful for all time to His promises will continue to be faithful to me now. I imagine none of us will ever be put to such a test of faith. Nevertheless, the question is, do we have hope in the situations that we face? Do we have hope in situations that are far less trying, far less difficult? Can we not have the same confident hope for the future? Seeing a God who not only promises to remain faithful to what He has declared will be, but also the God who sealed those promises with the offering of His own Son who though died for us did not stay dead, but reigns alive forevermore. Friends and loved ones, just as the chronicler wanted the people of Israel coming out of exile to have hope in the midst of their circumstances, so we today in an even greater way, we have seen the fulfillment of God's promises. We can have hope in the midst of any circumstance that we encounter today. Father, it is my prayer this morning that as we have heard the message of First Chronicles, that you would help us to have hope, God. That you would help us not to become discouraged. That you would <clears throat> help us not to live anxious lives. But that, Father, in every way we would live by hope in you. God, we ask all these things for the good of your people, for the glory of your name among the nations. Amen. In response to this morning's message, let me encourage you to stand and say,